Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the book of Exodus. Exodus is the second book in the Bible. In the evenings, we have been going through this book of Exodus as a counterweight to our New Testament study in the book of Romans. And this evening, we'll be looking at the first half of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. Exodus chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she took, him, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and, she, and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. Let's pray that he would add his blessing to it. Let's pray together. O Lord, please bless your word as it goes forth. Even as you have promised, let your word go forth and not return unto you void. Teach us, O Lord. Change us. Equip us. This we ask by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, our text this evening is a very familiar one. I would venture to guess that most, if not all, of the children here today are familiar with it. It wouldn't even surprise me if the vast majority of Americans knew the general contours of the story by heart. It is the story of baby Moses. But it is also the story of much more. It is a story about God redeeming his people. And as we look at this text this evening, I have one caution for you. It is possible that because we are so familiar with this text, that that very familiarity will hinder our efforts to see the wonderful details that God has in this text for us. Because we know the passage by heart, because we know the story by heart, 
we can grow lazy in our hearing. And it is my prayer today that God would make just such a familiar passage fresh for us. Now, we previously looked at the beginning of the book of Exodus in Exodus chapter 1. And by way of introduction then, let's remember the context of our passage this evening. The first chapter of Exodus sets forth the stage for the great drama of redemption that God enacts on behalf of his people. It is the great theme of redemption, God's covenantal faithfulness, the blessing of God upon his people, and the suffering that the people of God experience in the world. We saw that God fulfilled his promise to Abraham. He made that promise hundreds of years earlier to Abraham to make a great nation of him. And he was doing that with Israel in Egypt. Verse 7 of chapter 1 shows us exactly how God was doing this. It says that the children of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And we further saw that the opposition of the world and kings could not prevent God from fulfilling his promise. Because Moses tells us that Pharaoh proposed that the Egyptians deal shrewdly with Israel, lest they multiply. But the truth is, the more that they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. This showed us that God doesn't abandon his people in suffering, but rather he is always carrying out his purposes, that he is a true comfort and strength to his people in their suffering. Well, all of these things were provided to us by Moses to remind us thousands of years later of how we should view redemption on this side of the cross. The so what of this is that God is still faithful. His covenant remains with his people, fulfilled by the finished work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus has promised his people that he will never leave them orphans, that he will always be with them to the end of the world, and that they can do all things through him. Now, these are not new promises. They are the fulfillment of God's covenantal promises to his children that we see here in Exodus. Now, what we have here before us this evening is a unique glimpse of the providence of God in preparing redemption for his people. Lord willing, this evening we will see two aspects of God's provision in providence. First, that God is preparing salvation in ordinary providence. And then second, that God is preparing salvation in faithful promise, providence. Ordinary providence and faithful providence. Let's begin then by looking at God's provision in ordinary providence. Chapter 2 begins almost as an interlude in the story. Now, think about what is happening as we move from chapter 1 to chapter 2. Israel is growing into a nation from 70 persons. The Egyptians are persecuting the Israelites with all levels of hatred and bondage. There is a great murder plot abroad. Pharaoh has plotted to murder all of the male children of the Israelites. And that plot has been foiled by a few Hebrew midwives. 
And the anger of the king of Egypt has now reached its boiling point. Look at how chapter 1 ends in verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now, if this were a film or a play, we would all be on the edge of our seats, wouldn't we? We would wait to see what happens next. Will Pharaoh slaughter all of the Israelite children? Will the Israelites rise up to defend their children? Will there be great battles? Will there be wars? Will God call down fire and brimstone on Pharaoh? Don't let your familiarity with this story rob you of seeing the sheer inhumanity of Pharaoh's command to kill every male child. Now at first, Pharaoh had planned to betray the people of God in a silent, imperceptible way. You recall that he told the midwives to simply kill the boys during birth. But Pharaoh sees his plan frustrated, and this angers him. God has frustrated Pharaoh's wisdom. Yes, it is God who has done it. Because remember that the midwives did not do as Pharaoh commanded because of their fear of God. It is God who has brought this about. And so here we see at the very beginning the arrogance and the rebellion of Pharaoh that will unfold itself during the outpouring of the ten plagues. Now, what Pharaoh is willing to do is not only murder, but he takes it to the next level. He doesn't care who sees it. He goes from an imperceptible plan of murder to a public plan. Because he commands that the murders be enacted in the most public place of all of Egypt. The Nile was the center of Egyptian life. Many of us are familiar with the fact that the Nile provides the water and the soil for the Egyptians to grow their crops. As it overflows its banks, they're able to plant their crops and literally live off the Nile. But the Nile was even more than that, as important as it was. It was also the center of their culture and their religion. The Nile was a place where they went to worship. It was very public. And so now Pharaoh is trying to actually glory in his sin. Now, you may say, that doesn't make any sense to me. But we're seeing that in our day. It used to be about 10 or 15 or 20 years ago that politicians and people would stand up and say things like, I believe in a right to an abortion, but it should be rare. It should be legal, safe, and rare, were the arguments that were made. Now today, people make videos doing what they call shouting out their abortion, declaring that they are glad that they have had an abortion, that it is a mark of honor that they have murdered their child. This is the depths that sin takes us to. So what is happening now in the middle of this exciting, breathtaking story of Pharaoh and the Israelites? Chapter 2, verse 1 begins very peacefully, doesn't it? 
Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And so, while this chapter begins peacefully, the scriptures will not let us escape the context of what's going on. For the text continues. And when she saw that he was a fine child, the he there being the main word, she hid him three months. So what we see here is an ordinary family in the midst of extraordinary events. They are helpless and without hope apart from God. And we will see that God provides for them with his wonderful providence. Now this is especially important for you and me today because we face the daily battles of life, don't we? And when we think that everything is just too much for us to take, when our family is teetering on the brink, when work is unbearable, when our financial problems are pressing in, it is our temptation to view God as being unconcerned with us because we're just ordinary people. But ordinary people with ordinary circumstances, and one could even say in need of an ordinary providence, is exactly what we see here. Do you see how the chapter begins? A man from the house of Levi. And he took to wife a daughter of Levi. Surely these are ordinary people. If it weren't for other scriptures, we wouldn't even know that the names of these people, who would, whose son would shock the world, were Amram and Jochebed. We wouldn't even know their names. Why is that? Because right now their names are not important. What is important is what God is about to do in their midst by his providence. In chapters to come, we will see that the son of this nameless couple will be the means that God uses to redeem his people. Now that is important for us to keep in mind as we look here now at the humble beginning of God's redemption. It begins with a single family, with nothing remarkable about them. Even the fact that they are descended from Levi is not remarkable. You see, we tend to come to this passage and think Levi is a special tribe. It's the tribe of the priests, except for right now, it's not. The only thing that Levi is known for here at this point in history is for being a murderer. There's nothing special about this tribe. The name of Levi was actually a name of disgrace, and yet God takes this disgraced line, and he begins to work his work of redemption. Now, notice the ordinary means that are used here. Marriage, family. Don't forget that there's Miriam and Aaron in this family as well. Don't let the lack of spectacular events dampen your view of the providence of God. Because God is involved intimately in what is going on. Moses' parents were probably wrapped up in the ordinary in the day-to-day just like you and I would be. The everyday details of a pregnancy. The birth. The feeding of a baby. And yet they saw that God had changed their lives by this one little event. This is so like our God. 
God uses the small things of the world to confound the great. Just who was Moses? What had he done? He was just a child. And yet we see this motif throughout all of the scriptures, don't we? Of the child that God will use. We see it with Isaac. We see it with Joseph. We even see it with our Lord Jesus Christ. God delights to use the small things of the world to confound the great. Now you can imagine as Moses was born, his parents would look at him with a mixture of joy and fear. Is there anything like looking upon a newly born child? There is a joy that springs up in you. There is a pride. There is a wonder. There is a thankfulness. It could bring you to tears, can't it? There is absolutely nothing like it. But imagine at this time, as Jochebed holds her son and she realizes he's a son. She remembers verse 22 of chapter 1. And so this occasion of great blessing and joy is also one of fear. She might even have been tempted to say, would that I were barren and had never born a child. Because what could be worse than losing that child? Now, as a matter of fact, Moses' birth might have been seen not only as a difficulty, but even a curse. Because his birth would endanger the whole family by his hiding. Think about it. They hide Moses so that he's not killed. What will happen if the Egyptian police find out? Do you think they're just going to take it out on Moses? No. In our parlance, everyone else is an accessory to the fact. And so there is a danger here now, not just for Moses, the boy who has been born, but for his siblings, for his parents. There is a great danger before them. And yet, observe the beauty of this ordinary providence. Moses is born just at the time when Pharaoh's cruelty had risen to its height. Just at that time, God sends the Deliverer. Now, this should help us to understand that when men are projecting the ruin of the church, that God is at work. Moses did not appear on the scene for some years. But God was providing the Redeemer right when things looked blackest. This is how God works in His providence. He is not asleep. He is not unaware. He does not abandon us. We may not know what He is doing. But, beloved, do not think He is not doing anything. God is at work to protect And bless his people. Now think about what this would be like for the family to hide Moses. There would be great danger. I mentioned to you last week that my favorite film of all time is The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. Now if you have watched it as well, you need to kind of put off your belief in the Heston version. Because I think sometimes we import what the director has done into the text. And so we think, well, it wouldn't be that hard to hide Moses. 
The Hebrews are off by themselves in the ghetto, just like we saw in the movie. But actually, that's not the case. It's actually very dangerous. We find out from chapter 3, verse 22, that the Egyptians are neighbors to the Israelites. That the streets and the communities are mixed. And so what that would mean is that there would be Egyptians around. Now let me ask a question. Any mom can answer this. What do babies do? They cry. It's like a resource for them. Babies cry. Now imagine that every time your baby cried, you are fearful that someone will hear. Because you don't want anyone to know you've had a child. Because what's the first question an Egyptian is going to ask when they find out you have a baby? Is it a girl? Or is it a boy? And so you can just imagine for three long months... Moses' parents trying to hide their son. Now, the text tells us that they hid him for three months. And I think it does this intentionally. Because it tells us something about Moses' parents and their trust in the Lord. They didn't hide him for a day, or a weekend, or even a week. They hid him for three months. So they persevered in their plan to save their child. This was not a light decision. They treasured their son, and so they hid him away. I want you to notice something else that's important for our families today. That Moses' father and mother were unified in their decision to save their son. I find it very interesting that Exodus chapter 2 speaks of the actions of Moses' mother. But in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen recounts this in 7 verse 20, we are told that Moses was hid in his father's house, emphasizing the actions of his father. And then in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, that great chapter of faith, what is emphasized is the action of both of them. It is said that Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. And so we see here, that they are acting together, trusting the Lord, encouraging one another. This is something that will help us in our lives. As we trust the Lord, there is nothing that is a buttress to our faith, but that having someone alongside us who also trusts the Lord, encourage us. So that when one is weak, the other is strong. So that together they can come and weep and pray And go to the Lord. Now, do not think that his parents were swayed by mere appearance. Our text says they saw that Moses was a fine child. Other translations will use the word beautiful or proper. And we have this again idea in our minds of Moses' mother holding her son and cue the lights to the perfect angelic face. Right? Who wouldn't love a beautiful baby? Right? And so what we tend to think is, is that, well, they were maybe a bit irrational trying to disobey Pharaoh, but but look at how cute he is. How can you resist that face? No, that's not what the text is saying. 
What the text is saying that Moses was a beautiful child, but he was more than that. Because Stephen actually exposits this for us under inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Acts. And he says that Moses was beautiful or well-pleasing in God's sight. That there was something about Moses. That God had laid it upon their hearts that Moses was to serve the Lord. This is God's ordinary providence to a family. The second thing we see is God's provision in faithful providence. And we come to a point where Moses' parents have to act. Look at verse 3. When she could hide him no longer. The time had come that they couldn't hide Moses any longer. And now they must act. What must they do? How are they to act here? How will they know what to do? How will they know what is expected of them? Well, they act in the only way that they can. By faith. They had begun by faith. And now they must continue by faith. After all, we see that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And so now what we see here is a text not just about the provision of God, but what we see here is a text that encourages our faith. But what we have to understand is that faith does not reject legitimate means. Faith is not a blind leap in the dark. Faith is trusting the Lord... And taking advantage of the legitimate means that God gives to us. And so, Moses' mother doesn't just toss him into the river. She makes an ark. And she makes sure it's seaworthy as it would. Now, don't lose sight of the connotation here. She makes an ark. I know our translation says a basket. But this word, this Hebrew word for basket, is only used twice in the Old Testament. Here and in Genesis to describe the ark of Noah. You see, what we want to see from the scripture is that God is preparing salvation in the same way that he prepared salvation for Noah. Now, the choice of the place also is not random. I know if we go back to our film, we remember Moses' mother placing the basket in the river and it kind of floating down the river at random and it sticks in a spot. But that's not what the Bible tells us, is it? The ark doesn't float downstream. No, Moses' mother carefully puts the ark amongst the reeds so it won't float. Now take a step back and think, where is it then that she places the ark? She knows exactly where to place it. She places it where the daughter of Pharaoh comes to bathe. This is intentional on her part. It is not a random act of kindness that the daughter of Pharaoh comes to see Moses. No, it is intentional and planned by his parents. Now, I want you to also think about this. Where is the place that Moses is put? He's put in the place of death, isn't he? 
Because that's what the Nile is for male Hebrew children. It's the place of death. But Moses' mother places him, and she doesn't leave him alone. Miriam is close by at all times. And so this gives us a proper view of providence. Providence neither tempts God, nor does it ignore Him. It trusts that God is at work. And yet we work in His providence, because we are His hands. God had provided them with a child in a time of great danger. And they chose by faith to act in a manner that would glorify God. And they did everything they could that was at hand to them. Remember, for three months they hid Moses. The outcome was God's, not theirs. Now, I want you to also note the way that God works in his providence. There is an old saying that great doors swing on small hinges. And we see that here this evening. Because you can imagine, as Moses is among the reeds, and Pharaoh's daughter just happens to come out at that time, and just happens to see the basket, and just happens to come up to it, what does it say that happened? It says, Moses wept. Now, any of you who have children know there is a difference between crying and crying. And I don't think it's beyond my sanctified imagination to say that when Pharaoh's daughter picked up Moses, it was not that kind of crying that comes with a meltdown, screaming and yelling and changing of color. It's that kind of adorable crying that a baby does the kind of sniffling and wrinkling their nose and getting your attention, I'm so helpless, please help me, kind of crying. The kind of crying that makes you just want to go, oh, everything will be all right here, there, there, there. It's not the kind of crying where you say, what on earth are you doing? Now, think about it. That one little thing at exactly the perfect instance Seals the deal, as it were. Perhaps if Moses doesn't weep at just that moment, perhaps Pharaoh's daughter doesn't take an instant loving to him. You see, this is how God works. How more ordinary and menial can you get than a baby's cry? There's no plan here. This is how God is at work. And so God then begins to bless Moses and his family. We see this in verses 8 and 9. Now imagine if you are Moses' mother. You've given birth to him and you are hiding him and wondering if he will survive the year or if he will be thrown into the Nile. You don't know what to do. But now, because he's been found by Pharaoh's daughter nonetheless, and because in God's providence Miriam is right there and she says, Would you like me to go find a nurse? I think I might be able to find one. Pharaoh's daughter says, sure, that would be wonderful. And guess who Miriam goes and gets? Moses' mother. And now what happens is Moses' mother has her son out in the public and there is no danger anymore. 
if the Egyptian police come up and they say, who is this boy? She says, that's Pharaoh's daughter's son. Whoa, okay. Leave him alone. And you know what else? I love the way how God blesses and then blesses on top. Not only is Moses safe, not only does his mother get to hold him, she gets paid to hold him. What a blessing God showers on his people. Now, this should be obvious to us that God is at work. He saves Moses as an infant in the same way that he saved our Lord Jesus Christ in an infant. The destroyer, in this case, is actually compelled by God to raise up the Redeemer. Stop and think about that for a moment. God is going to redeem his people and to punish the destroyer and to foil his plans and he will make the destroyer raise and train his redeemer. That's how God works. When God does stuff like that, you don't ever need to worry how things will work out. Because if you come up with anything that's most improbable, I can't imagine how we could pay the bills this month. There's a million things would have to go right. Oh, you mean like God would have to make the man who wants to kill all the Hebrew male children to keep them slaves forever, raise and pay for and care for the man who will raise up and destroy the slavery and lead his people out, right? Like that kind of miracle. Exactly. That's God's providence. Pharaoh had proposed to deal wisely with the Israelites so that they would not get up out of the land. Do you remember that? And yet in the end, God compels him to give board, lodging, and education to the very man who will accomplish the very task that Pharaoh was trying to prevent. That's our God. Well, in conclusion then, in the story of Moses, there are many miraculous events that occur to bring out the outcome. The baby staying hidden, the choice of the river, the crying of the child, Pharaoh's daughter coming to bathe at exactly the right time. And yet we see the hand of God in all of them. Do not mock God in His providence. He has provided the most miraculous event for you to see. He became man, and He died on a cross. And more than that, the very events that have brought you here today and have me standing up here have conspired to bring this text before you so that you would see the providence of God. Have you ever experienced difficulty in your family? Have you ever wondered how you could go on? God would have you look to Him and His providence. He would have you be like Amram and Jochebed, hoping against hope, rejoicing in hope. Trust the Lord with all of the details of your life. As Peter says, cast your cares upon Him. Not some of your cares, not just the big cares, but all of the cares. Why? Because He cares for you. 
The Westminster Shorter Catechism answers the question, what are God's works of providence, by reminding us that God governs all His creatures and all their actions. Do you feel this way in your own life? Do you trust that everything you do, I mean everything, is under the hand of God? Remember this story, believers. Remember that God governs all things, but that He also has a special care for His people. John Calvin puts it this way, But we must hold fast to the principle that while God rules all men by His providence, He honors His elect with His special care and is watchful for their deliverance and support. And if we carefully weigh all of the circumstances, reason will easily assure us that all the things which led to the preservation of Moses were disposed by his guidance and under his auspices and by the secret inspiration of the Spirit. Moses seemed quite abandoned by his friends. His own mother dared not own him. But the Lord took him up and protected him. Let us trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and always try to see His hand in the small things of life. Let's pray.